Father, as we come before your word this morning, I pray that you would give us eyes that we might see how it applies to our own lives. It wouldn't simply be a rebuke of the church in Corinth of a couple thousand years ago. Father, that you would work it out in our life, that we might see what you're speaking to us about, that we would have ears to hear you, we would have eyes to see what you're doing in our lives, and how you would have us respond to this, your word. Lord, we need your help to do that. And we ask that you would soften hearts and open eyes and work your word deep into our lives. For your glory, we pray. Amen. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, as we continue to work our way through this series. This is the word of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is a, a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. We pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, as my words are true to your word, may they be taken to heart. But if my words should stray from yours... May they be quickly forgotten. I pray this in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. I assume you've heard something of the curious altercation at last week's Academy Awards ceremony. On the one hand, what could have been seen, or likely was, seems to be, a barbed and pointed joke. And on the other hand, an open-handed slap in the face as a rebuttal. Uh, immediately following that altercation, respondents at least initially lined up in defense of one side or the other, and intense moral outrage was expressed against so mean-spirited a joke by some and against such a violent response by others. Now, hear me say that I'm quick to agree that both Chris Rock's joke and Will Smith's slap are inappropriate and deserving of rebuke. But what's curious 
is there was no moral outrage at the expressly stated open sexual marriage relationship that the Smiths have. Neither his wife, Jada, nor Will, Jada, who, of course, bore the brunt of the joke, nor Will, her husband, the slapper, uh, they, neither of them wanted to be bound by what they called a traditional monogamous relationship. It's true that recently, after such open-mindedness had almost ended their 20-plus-year relationship, they're now rethinking some of those things. But it is a curious reflection on our culture that a man can be perfectly fine with someone else sleeping with his wife, but have no tolerance when a comedian cracks a cheap-shot joke. Silence on the sexual ethics front. Incredible moral outrage on the other. How did we get here? Perhaps it's because we believe that all things are lawful for me, with the emphasis being on the for me. So progressive sexual relationships are okay because they are, at least in theory, consensual. Something brings me immediate pleasure. Therefore, I want it because I like pleasure. And because I want it and have the means to get it, I will. After all, all things are lawful for me. It seems then that we are not too far from the attitude that Paul addresses when he writes to the church in Corinth. Paul's at it again. In this section in the letter to the church in Corinth, he's not pulling any punches, and he continues to rebuke and to correct his beloved Corinthian church, and he truly loves them. He's rebuked them for their divisions. He's rebuked them for their favoritism. He's rebuked them for allowing one member to marry his stepmother. He's rebuked them for lawsuits in particular And last week for immorality, both uh, social immorality and sexual immorality in general. And now he challenges them on some particular aspects of sexual immorality. And he begins with a repetition of what appears to be one of those several catchphrases, those pithy sayings that Corinth was known for. Paul repeats that phrase, all things are lawful for me. He repeats it twice in this opening verse and then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. And that threefold repetition has led some scholars to think that the phrase likely came from Paul himself when he planted the church. They presume or they wonder if Paul used it regularly to remind these new believers that now in Christ, They are no longer subject to the complicated Old Testament ceremonial laws. That they have freedom in Christ. Certainly, Paul speaks to that elsewhere. And yet here he qualifies it. In our text this morning, we'll see that what's free for us was costly for our Heavenly Father. We'll see that God has redeemed us And because he has purchased us, Paul makes the argument that our entire decision-making process needs to change. Because we are in union with Christ, our lives must be lived for his pleasure, for his 
glory. It's not just that all things are for me. Instead, when rightly understood what God has done, we'll rather recognize that all of me, body and soul, is for Christ. And it's a dramatic change. Moving from that self-centered worldview of pleasing myself to one of truly desiring to please the Lord. Here's how it starts. Paul begins with that twofold repetition of the phrase, all things are lawful. But each time Paul qualifies. First, he remarks that while all things may be lawful, not all things are helpful. Paul here simply notes what we know to be true. There are some things that are perfectly legal and perhaps in some contexts genuinely good, but they simply don't benefit us for a variety of reasons. Perhaps they might be a distraction to something we're trying to accomplish, uh, some particular goal we're trying to go down the road to, or they'll bog us down from a, a growth, maybe growth in grace in Christ that we're trying to uh, uh, that we're trying to see realized in our life. Paul's simply saying here, just because something is allowed doesn't mean it's necessarily advantageous. And then he builds on that point when he says all things are lawful for me now. He reminds his audience that just because it's allowed, the best response might be to shun that particular thing. Because more than being simply unhelpful or distracting, that thing may actually be addictive. It may try to take you into its power. It may be, in fact, incredibly harmful. There are pursuits, for instance, that our culture has deemed legal. Uh, that either are or carry addictive elements in them. I'm sure you can think of several situations, but there are many in which alcohol, for example, some types of recreational and legal drugs and consensual sexual relationships, they're all legal or can be legal. And yet each of these pursuits can ensnare a participant into bondage. Paul's making the point here. Some things may be legal, but I am not going to let them dominate me. They may have legal power, but they won't have power over me. Paul continues to build his case in verse 13. He now quotes another of those Corinthian sayings, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. What a curious thing to say. Food is for the stomach. I say yes and amen to that on Sunday dinner days. But what's going on here? Why is Paul introducing this saying? Well, Paul's recognizing that the Corinthians are arguing that because the stomach and food are made for each other, so the body and pleasure are made for each other. The idea here is that because finding sensory pleasure in eating a food that's a perfectly natural endeavor, one might conclude that allowing the body to find sensual pleasure is also perfectly natural. Paul realizes that this line of thinking can then be carried further. If the stomach takes pleasure in food and it's okay to eat, after all, it's only right to give the body what it wants, that he knows that the Corinthians 
And many of us today will take that point even further by saying, well, because the body takes pleasure in sexual relations, it's okay to pursue those experiences, whether consensual or contractual. After all, all things are lawful for me. And so we work that into our lives outside of the context of marriage, outside of the context of the building of the community, the building of the family. Paul attacks this notion of all things are for me. And he attacks it in a couple ways. First off, you'll see that he finishes out that curious Corinthian stomach food phrase in verse 13 by clarifying that God will destroy them both. Both the stomach and the food will be destroyed. He's not denying that beautiful picture of the future marriage feast of the lamb. He's rather pointing out that both the stomach and food are temporary and transitory fulfillments. Uh, Think about the fact that, well, maybe not with you, but with me, I get hungry just a few hours after each meal. That's no way to live. That's no focus to have. A much better way, Pastor Lloyd presented to us last week, we need to fix our eyes on what is unseen, what is eternal. This is what Paul has in mind. This is the point that he's working to as he continues his argument in verse 13. He's beginning to focus now on that one area that was a regular problem in Corinth for that new church. And I dare say it continues to be a problem for many in the church today. Paul writes next, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Paul here is cutting against the notion that all things are for me. He's saying your body isn't actually for you. It's for the Lord. And as if to elevate this point, Paul reverses the perspective and restates at the end of verse 13, not only is your body made for the Lord, but the Lord for the body. At the incarnation of God, when Jesus took on the form of human flesh, that reality elevated the body. It is not insignificant. Your body is not disposable. It is not temporary. The body is eternal. Notice how Paul, in verse 14, points us to this conclusion of his line of thinking here. He says, God raised up the Lord, and he will also raise us up in power. Your body will be raised at the resurrection, not just your soul, but your body and soul. Paul has highlighted the significance of our bodies. A New Testament scholar, uh, Thesselton, remarks that Paul has introduced what he calls, quote, the theology of the body. And he explains more, quote, that the body is more than some transient physical shell for the soul, end quote. Paul has explained that our body is exalted in the incarnation. He's shown that there's a, a measure of permanence by the power of the resurrection, And he makes one more significant point as he opens verse 15. Our bodies are also members of Christ. And since these are true, Paul wonders in the second half of verse 15, 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? It's radical words in the Hebrew. Shall I rip? Shall I tear the members of Christ and join them to a member of prostitute? Never, he declares. New Testament scholar Bloomberg on this verse writes, quote, Connection to the one who represents ultimate commitment with an act that represents the most casual of sexual relationships? Can we do that? Paul would say again, never. He wants his audience to engage in serious consideration here. He is not talking about casual sex. In fact, he would argue that there is no such thing. Listen to his argument in verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Sexual relations change us and they shape us, which is why God has given us an environment for that within the context of a marriage. A husband and a wife are engaged together and they are joined together in that deeply intimate relationship. And if we engage with prostitutes, we're being changed and shaped as well, just in a different direction. Paul is arguing that these individuals become unified together. I appreciated how Pastor Lloyd spoke of both the sexual and the social, those ethical sins of last week. They're both sins against community. And that is true here as well. Paul then, really trying to get the attention of the church in Corinth, he cites Genesis 2.24. He says, the two will become one flesh. And many scholars feel that he's employing kind of a shock technique here to dissuade the Corinthians from their casual view of sex. Paul uses the term prostitute, and that generates all sorts of debate among the scholars. Is Paul speaking about the sacred prostitutes? Is he speaking about the temple prostitutes? Is he speaking about the secular prostitutes? Honestly, I kind of scratched my head. I wasn't sure immediately if I knew the difference between a sacred and a temple prostitute. Apparently, the difference is where you find them. Are they a part of Roman or Greek worship at the temple? Do they show up at the religious festivals and feasts? Or are they simply just on a convenient corner? In any case, these prostitutes were convenient and accessible. They were discreet and available. And some in Corinth wondered, what's really the problem here? Consensual? Contractual? Why the big deal? Appreciate the perspective of one New Testament scholar who wrote, writes, and I, I believe this one's printed in your bulletin. Because sex reflects the most intimate of personal, interpersonal relations among humans, it should be reserved for the most permanent of interpersonal commitments. It should be re- reserved for marriage. As you can see, there's nothing casual about that view. Mentioning Genesis 2.24, Paul's, Paul's also drawing our attention to the reality that our spiritual marriage, 
of, being, of our spiritual marriage of being united with Christ. Uh, verse 17 then continues, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. It's no coincidence that in the Old Testament, when Israel was following after other gods, the prophets would call that spiritual adultery and sometimes just adultery. There is a great spiritual union that occurs with us and Christ. John Calvin on these verses writes this, quote, The union with Christ with us, or the union of Christ with us, is closer to that then of a husband and a wife. For if a man who is joined to a wife in marriage ought not to have union with a prostitute, it is far more serious in the case of believers who are not only one flesh with Christ, but also one spirit with Christ. So having presented this great dilemma, this danger, Paul shares with us the antidote as well. It's in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Not in my notes, but all of a sudden I just had a vision of Gandalf saying, fly you fools. I'll put that down for the next time. Flee from sexual immorality. And to do that, we're making a transition from thinking that all things are for me towards all of me is for Christ. Of course, here Paul argues that the first step in that right direction is a quick step away from the sexual temptations that may surround you. Highly doubt that we have a large sacred or temple prostitution problem here in the valley. I don't doubt that there are secular prostitutes, but it seems to me that the sexual temptations which we face are far more prevalent and closer to home. Convenient and accessible, discreet and available. Every one of us has ready access in the palm of our hand. A simple cell phone, a search for the news, an intriguing advertisement, that clickbait option to go look for some scar-faced dueling hotties, to quote Pastor Lloyd from last week, if you remember, and you are off to the races, beginning to unite your mind first. And unfortunately, in many cases, your body and soul later to sexual immorality. Step one, flee. Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, he gives the same advice. He said, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. I appreciate Paul's understanding that it's too hard to simply take something out. We need to replace things in our lives. It's so much more effective to replace them. And so Paul says, flee sexual immorality and instead pursue Righteous and faithful relationships and encounters and people and situations. We may be told to resist the devil in James 4, 7. We may be told to stand against the schemes of Satan in Ephesians 6, 10, 11, 13 in that area. But when it comes to sexual temptations, we are told to flee. 
What does that look like? If you were in my Sunday school class, I already alluded that it looks like the story in Genesis 39. Joseph, the servant of Potiphar, he's tempted by Potiphar's wife. Again and again, Genesis 39.10 reads, And she spoke to Joseph day after day, and he would not listen to her, to lie with her or be with her. He, he's realizing that something is happening, and he's starting to put some distance between himself and that temptation. But then verse 11 follows, But one day, of course you likely know the story, there's no one else around, and temptation becomes pitched. She literally grabs his cloak and says, Lie with me. And his response He fled. In fact, leaving the garment in her hand. She framed him, of course, but God took care of Joseph. God took care of Joseph such that Joseph could take care of God's people. Paul warns against the especially dangerous effects of sexual sin. He notes in verse 18 that every other sin is outside the body. Now, several scholars have noted that there seems to be other sins outside the, or that are in the body, uh, sins like gluttony, uh, drunkenness, perhaps even suicide. And the scholars say, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference might be that all of those other sins still need some outside factor, food or alcohol or, or something to affect this. Not the case with sexual sins. Their desires arise from within, and they serve no purpose in that wrong context other than the gratification of one's lusts. Uh, Additionally, Paul is saying that engaging in sexual sins is actually a sin against one's own body. There is truly a destructive tendency to sexual sins, relationally, emotionally, and at times even physically, you all know that. There are very few of us that don't have grief or angst at a relationship that went too far. Paul is stating the case. And Christ has already forgiven us for all of that. Simply appealing to us that as we come into those situations to flee, to flee that and to rest in our forgiveness. Paul is concerned with the physical damages, the effects of lust or unfaithfulness. But he's also concerned, to quote another scholar, with impurity and contamination to the name of Christ, and especially the question of ownership. And so he moves to close his whole arguments with these thoughts by asking the Corinthian audience in verse 19, Or do you not know? I remember now that the church in Corinth had prided themselves. They're so sophisticated and so wise, so advanced. Paul uses this phrase. He cuts against that idea ten times in the letter. Or do you not know? And we've actually had three of them in our short snippet. uh, In our few verses this morning, we've had three of those same questions. Verse 15 verse 16, and now here again in verse 19. It's obvious that Corinth was in need of correction on this point. What is it that they are to know here? It's that they are a temple of God. 
In chapter 3, verse 16, he made the point that together we are corporately God's temple. But here, each individual is a temple as well. And it's a temple that God's spirit indwells. My quiet time recently, I was reading of how Ezekiel was caught up and he was brought into the temple, which was filled with God's glory. Solomon also saw that at the dedication of the temple. And, and, and God's glory so filled the temple that it drove everything else out. Paul is driving his audience to consider this as well. Let God's spirit so fill your life with himself that it pushes everything else out. No more all things for me, but rather all of me for thee, for Christ. After all, and Paul closes, you are not your own. And he explains in verse 20, you were bought with a price. This is the gospel, the good news that God has ransomed us. He saw each of us as a slave to sin, as an addict to sin, blinded by our desire to live for us, working and and even deluding ourselves to see all things as lawful, if they were pleasurable, if we wanted it. And in many cases, we may have devalued our body, saw it merely as a receptacle for pleasure, And God has paid the price. And by the blood of his own son, he has rescued us from that. We are all free from that delusion. Instead of now living for our pleasure, we are now challenged and commanded to live for God's pleasure. With our body, with our body that God has redeemed that God values, that God will resurrect, a a body that has permanence, that is in union with our Savior. We can do so much more than mere passing pleasure, mere food and stomach games. We can, with our body as a temple, actually glorify God. We are not our own. Praise the Lord. He has made us so much more body and soul, in union with Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. And Father, thinking through the topic of sexual immorality, there's great occasion for some of us to be reminded of things we would rather forget and to even feel a sense of guilt and remorse and shame. And Father, I ask that as we feel that, that you would remind us again that we were bought with a price, that you have paid the certificate of debt and you have canceled it. And we are yours and you have freed us to live for your glory, to live for your pleasure, to glorify you in our body. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.